Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. A common question that people will ask me when I speak about the subject of forgiveness or salvation comes from Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, where it says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. People will ask this question in the context of forgiveness, because when I describe the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus and the reconciliation that we have in him because of what he did for us, I describe it in the context of him taking away the sin of the entire world, no longer holding anyone's sins against them anymore. And so when people get confronted with this statement, when they get confronted with this truth, it's very easy for them to reply. It's very understandable for many people to reply by asking about this passage in the scriptures, why Jesus would say that a person would be forgiven of all sin except for this specific one. And so if this is the case, then what is this particular sin? How do we know if we have committed this sin or not? This, of course, is a very important question when you consider the severity of the penalty that is described here by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. And it's rather amazing to me that I do find a lot of people struggling with this question. Many people do struggle with this question, and there are various reasons why they struggle with this issue. Probably the most common reason why a person will struggle with this passage and suspect that perhaps it does refer to them is because they can't seem to get all of the sin out of their life. And of course, when I put it that way, it sounds a little ridiculous. It should sound rather absurd, the idea that we can actually get all of the sin out of our life. But believe it or not, there are a lot of people who do teach this theology, this belief, that if you are saved, then one of the indicators that you are saved is that the Lord will work in your life in such a way that you will be able to get the sin out of your life. This is promoted throughout the Christian world today. This theology has been promoted in this context for a long time, in the context that if you are saved, then we should expect that the Lord will work in your life so that you can get all of the sin out of your life, or at least the really big ones, the really important ones. And so when a person continues to struggle with these sins in their life, they will begin to question whether or not they truly are saved. And this passage comes up in context of this issue in context of this question. I do encounter a lot of people who speak with me and ask me about this and suspect that they have committed this unpardonable sin because they cannot seem to overcome their own personal sins in their life. That seems to be an indicator that perhaps they're not saved. Another reason why people will bring this up is because they have been taught or they believe that the reason why the Lord has saved them is so that he can bless their flesh. 
Now, again, when I say it that way, it should sound relatively absurd. However, there is an art to communicating this message in a very religious way that sounds really good, that sounds holy, that sounds righteous, that sounds like the Lord has saved us for this distinct purpose, to bless our flesh. The way that people describe this, however, is they say that if you are following the Lord, then he will cause you to be prosperous. He will bring blessings in your life. He will intervene in circumstances in your life to ensure that you don't experience a great deal of pain and suffering or loss. This is how this message is generally communicated and why it's so easy to accept, because it sounds very appealing when I say it that way. However, when I say it differently, I say it in the context of he is here to bless your flesh, then certainly people can be offended by that. But when you look at the blessings that are being offered to an individual, when you look at the promises that are suggested to an individual, they all have to do with the flesh, and so why not just get to the point? But what happens in this context is that a person will generally engage the world, they will experience pain and suffering and loss, and because they don't seem to be getting blessed like they were told they would be getting blessed, they start to believe or suspect that perhaps they're not saved. Maybe this is one of the sins that they have committed, an unpardonable sin, one for which they will never be forgiven, and that they are deceiving themselves into thinking that they can possibly be saved, when in reality they can't because they already committed this unpardonable sin. These are the circumstances that a lot of people find themselves in, and then they contact me and they ask me, Can they be saved? Did they commit this sin? Did they not commit this sin? How would they know? They believe that perhaps they did because their life is falling apart. They can't understand why, and so they're looking for some justification of some kind or some explanation as to why they are not being blessed as they were told they would be blessed. But, of course, the Lord did not put us on this earth for the purpose of blessing our flesh, and he did not put us on this earth in order to keep us from sinning. He put us on this earth so that we would have an opportunity to know him. And there are many programs that I have already done that address this subject in good detail. For example, The Will of God is a very good series that I have done that addresses this subject, not in the context of what we can hopefully obtain, but instead in the context of what we have already been given as a result of his death, what we have been given in the context of an inheritance, and that we are to now live our daily lives in light of what we already have, not on the basis of what we hope that we may be able to obtain as a result of our performance for our God. But either way, there are still many people in the Christian world who do aggressively teach, and there are many people who also believe, that if a person sins too much, then they can lose their salvation. There are many reasons why people believe that. I certainly am not going to address those issues in this program, However, it's important to understand that there are many people who do believe that, and so if they do believe that, then this passage would be very attractive to them, as well as many others, again, that I'm not going to refer to right now. This passage, certainly, would be very attractive to them because it enforces this idea that a person can sin too much to the extent where they can lose their salvation or they can never be saved. This is a belief that many people hold to, and so because of that, this verse can be very attractive in order to support that belief. However, there are many other people who do not believe that a person can lose their salvation if they have been saved. I certainly am one of those people, and the reason why I believe this is because of the definition of salvation. 
I believe that the definition of salvation is not just getting your sins forgiven. I believe that getting your sins forgiven is what makes it possible to be saved. I believe that everyone in the world has already been forgiven because of what Christ Jesus has done, and that there is no sin left unforgiven, that there is no sin that the Lord will hold against anyone. I do not believe that anyone will ever go to hell because of their sin. I believe that a person will go to hell because they're spiritually dead. That the real problem between man and God, between us and our God, is not that we have sin that needs to be forgiven. That certainly is a problem. However, the most important problem that was defined in Genesis was not sin entering into the world. It was the result of sin, which was spiritual death. It was the absence of the Holy Spirit from Adam and Eve that caused them to die spiritually. And this is a problem that needs to be resolved. And I sincerely believe that this is what the Lord Jesus came to resolve. By dying for our sins, he died for all of our sins so that he would not hold any of our sins against us. However, he did that to reconcile us to himself so that he could offer to us the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam and that this is being offered as a free gift to anyone who would receive it. If you will receive this life that had been lost in Adam, then you are resurrected, you are made alive to him. This restoration of the Holy Spirit is salvation. However, what's important to consider is what caused that life to be lost to begin with, and that was sin. And so this is why I believe it is important to completely resolve the whole issue of sin, Because if there was any sin left unforgiven, then there would be a sin that could cause the Holy Spirit to depart from within us. We would therefore be spiritually dead. We would lose our salvation. So it depends on your definition of the gospel. It depends on your definition of salvation. Many people will argue these points about whether or not a person can lose their salvation and never get to the issue of what salvation truly is. Many people will argue that this passage in the scriptures, Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, describes an opportunity for a person to lose their salvation or exclude themselves from ever being able to obtain salvation without ever discussing what the gospel actually is. Because I do believe that if we understand what the gospel is, it will answer many of these questions, this one included. Paul described this definition of the gospel in Romans chapter 5, verses 8, 9, and 10, especially Romans chapter 5, verse 10, where he said, How much more, having been reconciled by the death of his son, you shall be saved by his life. In other words, you're not saved by his death, you are saved by his life. And of course, there are many passages that I could refer to to describe this definition of salvation as well. But again, for those people who believe that you can lose your salvation, they can take this verse at face value and let it stand on its own. However, for those who do not believe that they can lose their salvation, what are they going to do with this verse? Well, the way that people will generally approach this if they do not believe that a person can lose their salvation is they go for the context, which is, of course, a very good thing to do. It's very important to understand the context of all the passages in the scriptures, how they relate to one another, how they relate to what the Lord Jesus was doing, what he was trying to accomplish, This is, of course, a very important thing to keep in mind when considering any difficult passage in the scriptures. Well, the context of this has to do with the fact that the Pharisees rejected the Lord Jesus because he performed a miracle and they believed that he performed the miracle by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. 
The miracle that he had performed was that he had cast out a demon from a man who could not see, speak, or hear. He was blind and mute, and they said that the miracle that was performed was done by the power of the devil. That's the context in Matthew chapter 12. And so many people will take that context and say that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the devil, or it is claiming that a miracle performed by the Holy Spirit was actually performed by the devil. And so based on this context and this definition, if you ever claim that a work of God was done by the devil, then you will have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and you will never be saved. You can never possibly be saved because this is a sin that the Lord will never forgive. That becomes the conclusion. It becomes the conclusion that if you ever claim that a miracle performed by God is actually done by the devil, then you cannot be saved. Now, of course, there are many miracles that people claim occur all the time. There are many miracles that do occur all the time. And so how will you know if it is a miracle that somebody just claims has occurred or it is a miracle that has truly occurred? And, of course, we know that the devil does have the ability to perform miracles or give the appearance that he is performing miracles. And so when a miracle occurs and it is done by the devil, how will you know? There is great risk in making a judgment when any miraculous event occurs. There is great risk because if it was actually the Holy Spirit who did that and not the devil, then you run the risk of committing the unpardonable sin. And so this becomes the gospel that many people believe. It is a gospel of do not claim that a miracle is done by the devil because it might be done by the Holy Spirit. And so if you never pass judgment on a miracle and say that it is done by the devil when in actuality it was actually done by the Holy Spirit, then chances are you'll never commit blasphemy. But if you do that on any occasion, then you may commit blasphemy and you could either lose your salvation or lose your candidacy for ever being saved at all. Now, of course, when I take it to this logical conclusion, then it makes perfect sense, or at least it makes perfect sense up to a point. It makes perfect sense logically if that is the definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But from the context of what we understand about salvation as the restoration of life and recognizing that all sin has been forgiven, it just doesn't make any sense at all. It makes absolutely no sense. How can you bridge the gap between sin and death and then claiming that a miracle was done or not done by the Holy Spirit and then make the leap to forgiveness and the restoration of life? There is a huge disconnect in this theology that I just described, a huge disconnect. And so what people will often say is they will say back then, in the time of the Lord Jesus, during his ministry, which was when the Old Covenant was in effect, this was true. However, when the New Covenant went into effect, it was not attributing the miracles of the Lord Jesus to the devil. It was not a rejection of the Lord Jesus in that way. Today, it is the rejection of the Lord Jesus in terms of the salvation that he is offering. This is how people will often try to bridge the gap between the perspective that I just described of make sure that you never claim that a miracle done by the Holy Spirit is perhaps done by the devil to now just simply accepting the free gift of eternal life. This is how people will bridge the gap. However, 
I personally believe that this is a giant leap. I just do not believe that this is the appropriate way to handle this, to try to bridge the gap in that way. Some people are satisfied with this conclusion, and I certainly will not argue with them about this conclusion. If this satisfies them, then I certainly have nothing to say about it. However, for me personally, I have trouble with this, because the greater context of this doesn't really have anything to do with salvation. It has to do with whether or not the Jews are going to acknowledge that he is the Messiah. You see, the miracle that took place was a very important miracle. The miracle of casting out the demon from the man who was both blind and mute was a very important miracle. And to make this leap from the miracle taking place and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and losing your salvation minimizes, severely minimizes the importance of the miracle that the Lord Jesus performed. Now, I don't have time in this program to describe the importance of this miracle. Instead, I will tell you that I described the importance of this miracle in the first program that I did on accounting for the three days and the three nights that Jesus was in the grave. And so I'm going to refer you to those programs that I did on that subject where I did explain this miracle in detail. I described the importance of the miracle, especially in the history of Israel and especially in context of the beliefs of the Pharisees with regards to who the Messiah would be and how they would be able to recognize the Messiah. Instead, I just want to mention that this is a very important miracle, that it was the Lord Jesus who made a disconnect from this miracle to another subject, that being the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And for us to try to harmonize the two will depreciate the importance of that miracle. I do believe that Jesus makes a leap from performing this miracle to testify of his messianic identity, he makes a giant leap from this context to this other context of you will not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven under any circumstances, not just because of your rejection of this miracle, but because of your rejection of me. You see, it is at this point in his ministry that the people reject him officially as the Messiah. And so the first thing that the Lord Jesus says is in recognition that these people reject him as the Messiah. Now pay attention to this, and that is that the purpose for him to be the Messiah was not to perform miracles, such as these miracles that are described in the Gospels. The objective of the Messiah was to perform the miracle of restoring the life of God that had been lost in Adam. That is the true miracle that is of importance, because that is the miracle of salvation. This man who he set free from the demon that was oppressing him may or may not have been saved. We don't know. We don't have enough information to be able to determine whether or not this man was ever saved. It certainly would not have been because of the miracle. It would be because of his recognition and acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah and his turning to the Lord Jesus for what the Lord Jesus came to give him. That would be the means by which he would be saved, just like anybody else. But what the Lord Jesus came to offer was not these miracles in the flesh. He came to offer the true miracle of the Spirit, the restoration of the Holy Spirit, that would be provided after he died and rose again from the dead. It is this context of the Lord Jesus explaining to the people that the miracle of the Lord Jesus being in the grave for three days and three nights has importance, that it is in this context that salvation is referred to, and it is referred to in the context of the Holy Spirit, the restoration of the Holy Spirit. 
If the people were not willing to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, if they were not willing to acknowledge him as the Messiah, then they would not turn to him for what he came to offer. That's where Jesus makes the disconnect from the miracles that he is performing. He claims that he is no longer going to perform any more miracles except for the sign of Jonah. And from this point forward, the only thing that really is of importance, and in reality the only thing that really is of importance anyway, the miracles testified of him as a person. However, it is what he as a person came to actually give that is of importance. And if the people refuse to accept that, Beyond his testimony of him being the Messiah, if they refuse to accept the free gift of the Holy Spirit that they have a need for, because that is what was lost in Adam, if they refuse to accept that, then they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is no way that they can possibly be saved, because that is salvation. And so how do I make the connection between the definition of salvation and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? How can I make the connection between the two? That's the important question. Well, I believe that the way that the connection is made is by understanding the definition of blasphemy. You see, it's very easy for us to use the word blasphemy and not have any idea what it really means. When we do that, then it's very easy to impute whatever meaning we want to impute into that word. For example, you could say that it is using the name of God while cursing something. You could say something like that, or you could say anything for that matter. It's important to first define what the word blasphemy means, because once you do that, I believe it's very easy to be able to determine precisely what I believe the Lord Jesus was actually saying. The definition of blasphemy that I prefer to use is that which was recorded in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 10, the people who were speaking to the Lord Jesus used the word blasphemy. And so I believe that if we understand how the people used the word, then we can also appreciate and understand how Jesus used the word, because he would obviously be communicating to them in a way that they could understand. And so this is one example why I believe it is very vital to understand the beliefs of the people at that time in order to fully appreciate the scriptures, in order to fully appreciate the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the things that he said, taught, and did, in the context of the culture and in the context of the beliefs of the people at that time. Beginning in John chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, You are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, of course, when Jesus responded to them in verse 34, when he said, has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods, he certainly was not giving a defense 
to their accusation by saying that, I explained this in a program that I did, You Are Gods, where I explained this verse in detail. I'm going to have to skip over this because of the lack of time in this broadcast. Instead, what I want you to see is that they believed he was committing blasphemy because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be the Son of God, who effectively is the same as God, or has the same authority as God. They understood in their culture, in their beliefs at that time, that Jesus was claiming to be God, and that was his act of blasphemy. And so if this is the definition of blasphemy, to claim that you are God, for Jesus to say that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin, is to say that claiming to be the Holy Spirit is a sin that will not be forgiven. Why would that be a sin that would not be forgiven? Because in order to be saved, you have to first recognize that you are spiritually dead. You have to recognize and acknowledge that your spirit is not the Holy Spirit, is not spiritually alive, that you have a need for the Holy Spirit. But if you believe that you do not have a need for the Holy Spirit, then by default, you are claiming that your spirit is adequate, that your spirit is adequately alive, that it is equal with the Holy Spirit of God. And that is blasphemy, claiming that you or that your spirit is equal with the Holy Spirit. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that is a sin that cannot be forgiven to the point of salvation, because that is salvation. That is the means by which a person can be saved. It is by the restoration of the Holy Spirit, and you must receive that as a free gift. Otherwise, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is a sin that cannot be forgiven. And I sincerely believe that that is what the Lord Jesus was referring to, that you may reject him as the Messiah. I understand that. But by doing so, you are rejecting what he came to give, and that is the Holy Spirit that you have a need for, in order to be resurrected and be saved. And so it's one thing to reject the miracles of the Lord Jesus and claim that Satan was actually doing those miracles. That's one thing. But the real thing that's going to really matter is your refusal to recognize your need to be made alive by the restoration of the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam. That is an act of blasphemy for which there is no provision for forgiveness. You can certainly be forgiven for claiming that the works done by the Holy Spirit were done by the devil. You can be forgiven for attributing the works of the Spirit to the devil, but what you cannot be forgiven of is the rejection of the restoration of the Holy Spirit, which is salvation. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. 